Richard Schweitzer, someone, someone who you may be familiar with, in a famous work in the early 20th century, wrote The Quest for the Historical Jesus. In this book, he details uh, from history what he believed Jesus was, a, a mere person that, in essence, overplayed his hand in his time that he lived. Schweitzer went on to write, Schweitzer went on to write in his book, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in a knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. But it refused to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was once strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purposes, is now hanging still upon the cross. Schweitzer didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. Schweitzer believed that Jesus was a mere man who, as I said earlier, overplayed his hand, who got caught up in the, in the commotion and the excitement that he thought himself to be the Messiah. Friends, I wonder as you gather this morning, do you think Jesus was just a mere accident? That Jesus' death was just a, a, a terrible, terrible conclusion to some bad decisions that this man, Jesus, made? That, you know, if Jesus would have been a little bit nicer to the Jews... He would have been a little bit more kind to Pilate, perhaps, that Jesus wouldn't have died. Jesus was just a mere man who had no control over the events of his life, like Schweitzer believed. And it really was, that Jesus really was, if you will, a victim in all of this. That history crushed him. I wonder, have you ever given thought to that? Who Jesus really is? And what Jesus came to do? Was Jesus in control of his destiny? Was Jesus more than just a mere man who fell at the fate of others? Friends, that's what we want to think about this morning in Mark's gospel. Was Jesus really in control? Did Jesus really have a handle on human history? Was he really who he revealed himself to be? And who I hope you see Mark say he is? That's what we want to think about together in God's word. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll find a pew Bible in front of you. You are more than welcome to open that. I encourage you to open that Bible, and you can page turn to page 850 in that Bible. Um, if you're not familiar with looking at God's Word, 
the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. Um, and so we're going to be in chapter 14, large 14, and small verse 12. Mark 14, 12. And we're going to be reading through verse 26. Again, I just invite you to leave that open in front of you as we make reference often to it this morning. Mark writes, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you an upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when evening was, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at, at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to become, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When we understand that identity, our identity, whether it be the identity of ourselves or our family or our culture. We understand that identity is at close at heart to, to really any culture that we live in. Whether you live in America or in some other country or of a, some other group of people, we understand that identity is close at heart to the culture in which we live in. Um, so our cultural practices identify who we are. And uh, if you've ever traveled outside of the United States, you begin to see that in sort of a, a big scale way. In fact, I often encourage sort of narrow-minded Americans to visit other countries to recognize there are other people that know things uh, more maybe perhaps than Americans do. Um, and so I often encourage that. And as you see that identity plays an important part of who we are, what we become. Uh, many times we understand that identity is closely associated also with what we hope to become. That is not only what we are, but what we hope to achieve in life. Identity is sort of about projecting an image, an image on others or on ourselves or the world around us. Telling them really who we are, what we like, what we don't like, what we think is good and what we think is bad. Uh, our identity also tells others what our goals are, what, what our achievements are in life or what our aspirations are or what we desire to become. What we understand, what I hope to show you this morning through this passage, 
is that that the Lord's Supper, well, it's an identity-shaping event. The Lord's Supper is meant to shape our identity as God's people. It's to help transform who we are and to show the world who we follow. Now, Jesus, through instruction and by example, has instituted two ordinances, one being baptism, which we celebrate upon a profession of faith. So we believe that, that baptism is a, an obedience to the commands of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore into all the world and baptize. And after making disciples of them, we are to go about baptizing. So we understand that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be then baptized upon that profession of faith. We understand that baptism doesn't precede our profession of faith. That is, that baptism doesn't save us. But rather, we understand that baptism is then the response to what Christ has done in and through us in the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. You go under the water to signify your death with Christ, that you have died. You come out of the water to signify that you have come alive in Christ, that you are now a new creation. You have been given a new life in Christ. This morning, we want to think about that second ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and how it also, like baptism, shapes our identity, how it also, like baptism, displays the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, where we die under the water and we come out new people, as it symbols that and signifies what has happened inwardly, we want to understand that the Lord's Supper is a similar event by which we also celebrate this identity-shaping event monthly, or maybe even more often as God calls us to do it, where we not only identify together with Christ by eating the elements, we also identify with one another. We're doing the same thing that others are doing in the room, thereby identifying with them. We're saying we're together. Not only with those in the room, but with all of those in Christendom. All of those throughout the history of the church, we are uniting to through the Lord's Supper. We are saying we are together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only that, we also understand that the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance. To remind ourselves and to then in retrospect to reflect upon our own heart. Jesus knew his disciples would need this. A regular time where they would slow down from the busyness of life, from the, the chaos and the turmoil and the difficulty around them, where they had perhaps neglected to confess sin because they had covered it up with busyness and perhaps hidden it away in darkness have a regular time to reflect and to confess sin. And so every month we have that opportunity. 
we have that opportunity. And that's what we want to think about again this morning. How does the Lord's Supper work? What we want to understand Jesus is doing in this passage is this. He is inaugurating a new period of redemptive history. Through this Last Supper, through the Lord's Supper that we see in Mark's Gospel, through the events that took place in that upper room, what Jesus is saying is that the day has arrived, the new covenant is at hand, and it is being inaugurated. It was by no accident that Jesus did this on the very day of the Passover. It was by no accident that Jesus was doing this while they shared the Passover meal. What Jesus was saying is that in me a new Passover is dawning. A new day has come. A new period of redemptive history where God would not work through the old covenant any longer, but now would work through the new covenant. That new covenant we heard about in Jeremiah 31 and 1. So as we consider this passage this morning, I sort of have three general points. What I want to do is just sort of walk through the narrative this morning. And really then settle in on what is it that the Lord's Supper is meant to teach us? What, what is it that the Lord is doing through this? And then how can we benefit as God's people from it? How can we, if you will, see that guarding the table, to use older language, fencing the table, guarding those who partake of the Lord's Supper, how it guards the gospel? So let's look first at the backdrop. Uh, Mark sets the stage, uh, if you will. In Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, what we see is sort of the backdrop laid by Jesus. Jesus is laying all of this within a particular context, a particular time. It is by no accident that the Lord institutes the communion that we celebrate on this particular day, at this particular time in history. It's not as if Jesus is saying, you know, I could have done this, you know, three years earlier. And, you know, no, th this is a particular day for a particular purpose. Notice what Mark says. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to them, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so what we understand then is that Jesus' disciples and Jesus are beginning to uh, eat the Passover. They're making preparation to eat the Passover. So what is the Passover? Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is not uh, you know, foreign to you, but maybe perhaps you're not familiar with that. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe it's been some time. Well, the Passover was a, was a central part, a central festival or feast in the life of the nation of Israel. It was, if you will, the pinnacle day in the life of the people of Israel. Why? Well, it was because it was the day that they were delivered from their slavery in Egypt. So if you want to read more about that, you can go to Exodus. And you can read there how, because of some circumstances, that the Israelite people had become enslaved uh, in, the, in the nation of in the nation of Egypt, and, and they were slaves there. About a million folks were down there in Egypt, and they were enslaved, and they were crying out to God that he, would, that he would deliver them. And through a set of circumstances, God raised up Moses to deliver the people. And on that final night before they were finally set free by Pharaoh, 
the Lord told Moses and the nation of Israel to go and to sacrifice some lambs. Go and find some spotless lambs. You know, not the weak ones, not the ones with the limps, not the ones with the spots, not the ones that they would perhaps throw away, but the ones that they were kind of keeping for the special day. The ones that were most special to them, the lambs that were, you know, the really good looking ones, the ones they knew would be the, the be reserved for the best day. God said, I want you to go and I want you to kill that spotless lamb. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to paint it on the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel goes out that night, when the death angel goes out, if he sees the blood on the post, he will pass over the house. So the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. Uh, was sacrificed, and that that signified that something died so that the the firstborn of the household wouldn't die. What we see in the Passover lamb is a theme we've seen over the last few weeks, and that's the substitutionary atonement. Something dies in the place of another. In, In fact, we see that's the central sort of theme of the Old Testament, is that for which So this innocent lamb, then we understand, was condemned so that the guilty might go free. That blood signified that something died so that the firstborn child didn't have to die. And so this time uh, in the nation of Israel was not only a time of celebration of God's freedom from slavery, but ultimately their freedom from slavery to sin. They understood that God was, through this Passover time, was working atonement or forgiveness for them. That God was actually working in their lives a means to, of reconciliation. And so then the Passover lamb would become sort of that tapestry, that, 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 that canvas which God would paint and display the picture of redemption. So when Jesus then is telling his disciples, get ready for the Passover, and then instituting the Lord's Supper on the Passover, oh, he wants us to understand very clearly what he means is that the line has passed over the house. In fact, we understand that that substitutionary atonement, it works, it works. This means that something dies so that you can be set at one with God. Something else died so that you could have a relationship with God. And we believe that one that died was Jesus. And we understand, though, that that, that the atonement is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's central to Christianity. That if you don't have the atonement, you don't have Christianity. In fact, the atonement of Christ is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Every other world religion has you doing something to appease some divine being. Only in Christianity do you find, do you rest and see that it is not you that has secured your relationship with God, but that the death of another. And so this thread runs throughout the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the atonement of Christ is is central to the story of the Bible. Without the atonement, we have no Bible. In fact, it just unravels and falls apart. It seems really silly. 
I know growing up as a child, I often questioned, I'm like, does God like barbecuing them? Because he likes them to barbecue animals all the time. I, 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 I'm one who loves to barbecue. And I just wondered what it must have smelled like on the Day of Atonement. When thousands upon thousands of animals were sacrificed. Just the other night, just last night, in fact, I, because of the nice weather, I, of course, fired up the grill and barbecued because, I mean, you have to take advantage of this weather. And again, I was reminded that that smell. Look, you've been there, right? You, you know, a nice day, and you smell the neighbor down the street grilling, right? You smell it. You smell the roasted meat, and you're like, man, that smells good. I want that. It smells amazing. I mean, just the charcoal firing up smells good. It's like, oh, I, can, I can't wait. Let's think for a moment what that would have smelled like. It smelled like forgiveness. It smelled like God's wrath was being appeased. That God's wrath was being satisfied as that wafted across the the landscape of Israel, as they smelled thousands upon thousands of lambs being burned upon the altars, that smell rose and the wind carried it across in the village and across the streets. They smelled forgiveness. They they smelled atonement, reconciliation with the God who they had offended. that what happened in the Old Testament was a foreshadow of that which would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are unleavened, he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is the lamb of God, the spotless lamb who was sacrificed. Jesus is orchestrating all of these events in Mark's gospel in this passage to propel us to the conclusion that he is that lamb. He is, if you will, preparing a visible illustration for his disciples on which he would say, yeah, you see that? See what we're eating here? That's me. Jesus says earlier in the gospel, unless you drink my blood. Now Jesus isn't calling us to cannibalism. He isn't calling us to literally eat the blood of Christ, eat the, the body of Christ and drink the blood. No, he's, what he's understanding, what he wants us to understand that it's only through his sacrifice for which we can have a relationship with God. It's only through that Passover lamb, the lamb of Christ, the, that spotless lamb that we can then have a relationship. And so what we want to understand in this passage, what the point I'm driving at here, is that Jesus is in control. Let me show you in this passage what I mean. 
Look with me in verse 13. So remember, the disciples have asked, where are we going to go eat this Passover? Where are we going to go do this at? Again, remember, the streets are swelled with people. This, you know, this, is, this isn't just, you know, friends, this is Christmas Eve at the mall, okay? That's what this is, okay? It's complete chaos. It, 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 the crazies are out in the streets. It, it's crazy, okay? This is crazy day, okay? And, and, G, and disciples are like, yo, what? Where are we going to do this at, Lord? And what we want to see is some intentionality on the behalf of our Lord. Verse 13. And he said to his two disciples, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now pause. This alone would have been, whoa, this dude carrying water. Why? Because the men didn't carry water. Okay? That was, that was a woman's job. Not implying anything about it. It was just a custom of this culture, right? In this particular culture, women would go to the well, get water, and carry it. So if they saw a man carrying water, that was a little weird. Be like, wait, that must be him, right? So, so don't think like there was like a bunch of men carrying water around. No, they would have understood like, why is that? Oh, that's the guy we need to see, okay? So, so that would have been an indicator for them, a man carrying water. Don't know why that, that's the case. This is what Jesus says then to follow him. You see that guy? Follow him. Seems strange follow people in the streets now and notice what he says when when he enters his house say to the master of the house the teacher says where is my guest room where i may eat the passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us the passover so what we see here is that jesus is orchestrating these events jesus has made preparation he has prepared his disciples for what is going to excuse me what is going to happen Okay, so we understand that. We understand Jesus is the one who is doing all this. He is the one moving this forward. We see also then in verses 17 through 21, which we'll get more to in a moment, is that Jesus knows who is going to betray him. Jesus knows who is going to betray him. Not because he has some listening device on, uh, on Judas. Not because he's been tapping his phone and he's been listening to his conversations with the, with the high priest. No, he knows because Jesus is in control. He knows that he's going to be betrayed, but yet he goes forward. He moves on. So what does this all mean? What ultimately does it mean for us? Friend, I want you to understand that God is in control of, of redemption. God is in control of our redemption. Jesus is in control of this redemption. He didn't fall into some trap that Judas laid. It wasn't as if, like, you know, Judas tricked Jesus. Like, well, man, I didn't see that coming. Jesus understood everything that was happening. He was intentional, and he prepared. What this ultimately then displays is that God cares for you. God cares for you. God cares for your redemption. Let's move on to the betrayal. Jesus outlines in verses 17 through 21... Uh, that one who is going to betray him. Notice what he says. They're evening now. They're eating the Passover. And as they're reclining at the table, just the customary way in which they ate, they sat on the ground and ate. Okay, They didn't have chairs like us. They sat on the ground. They're eating. And as they're eating, Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Now, naturally, what do we see happen? The NIV fleshes out a little bit more kind of what they're saying. They say, surely not I. So, so their answer, their, their, their question sort of implies a no. It's not me. 
often that seems quite natural, right? Someone accuses you, what do you do? No, not me. I didn't do it. Even though you did it. No, not me. Right? Maybe that's just kids that do that. I don't know. Um, so, right? So what we begin to understand is they begin to become sorrowful, Mark says in, in verse 19. And ra- naturally so. They begin to wonder, well, is it me? Is it me that's going to turn against the Lord? The only thing we want to see is that the Lord Jesus was betrayed by Pilate. It's emphasized in the passage there. Notice what Jesus says in verse 20. It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. By the one closest to him. One of the twelve. Now we know his name is Judas. We know that because, well, Mark told us all the way back in chapter 1. In in fact, that's how Judas would be known. He's the betrayer. As we talked about last week, that that, that even if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, even in the English language, Judases, right? When we say someone's a Judas, we mean that they're a betrayer, right? And, and so what we understand then is that what we want to understand by this is that is what Jesus says in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, as it is written of him. What we see Jesus then doing is fulfilling what God promised would happen. In Zechariah 13, as Jesus will quote in a text we'll consider next week, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In a sense, it's a fulfillment of, Isaiah, of Zechariah 13, 7. That is, that, that, that the Lord is the one who's actually doing this. The Lord is behind the betrayal. His Father is the one who's orchestrated this, in fact, and Jesus full well knows that this is the this betrayal will be what precipitates his arrest and his death. For as Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many accounted right, and he shall bear their iniquities. What Isaiah 53, 11 is saying is that Jesus is taking upon himself the sins of even Judas, the one who was betrayed. I just want you to consider for a moment at what lengths your Savior went to secure your salvation. I mean, if you've ever been betrayed before, you know the kind of lasting pain that causes. In fact, betrayal has to be probably one of the most difficult things to overcome, is it not? We expect our enemies to hurt us. We expect perhaps even, we're not surprised when a stranger hurts us. But a friend, someone who we've invested time and energy, who we've shared meals with and and cried with and wept with and celebrated joy with and happiness and life, we live life with and then they turn and betray us. Your Savior Secure your salvation. He was betrayed by those closest to him. In fact, he wasn't just betrayed by Judas. No, the story goes on to tell us that he was betrayed by all of them. Every last one of them. 
even Peter, who would become the leader of the church, fell. Friends, that warns us that we too could fall into error. That we too could lose faith and doubt. Not that we would lose our salvation. We see further in this passage just something of of human depravity. The depth in which human soul and sin will go before he dies. He dies for us. Let's consider now, having sort of understood sort of the backdrop, understood sort of the betrayal that preceded the Lord's Supper, having that sort of in our minds, in the background, we understand a little bit more in our remaining time sort of what the institution, we're going to move very quickly through this. Verses 20 through 25, the Lord, verses 25 through 26, excuse me, sort of details what happened that day. A familiar passage to many here. What we want to understand is that the Lord's Supper is nothing short of the gospel So just a little background here. We use the term Lord's Supper. And and that's really coming from 1 Corinthians, for example. Paul's really the only one who uses that language. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.20 uses the the Supper of the Lord or the Lord's Supper. And uh, just a little tidbit, the reason why we as Baptists do that is because uh, we have a a bit of a history with uh, Catholics Particularly that Catholics often killed Baptists over baptism in the Lord's Supper. And uh, and Baptists wanted to distance themselves with Roman Catholicism. And so wouldn't call it communion. Lest folks would be confused that what we celebrate was their same practice. So if you ever wondered why that is, that's why. Uh, But it is also known, communion is an appropriate term. It's okay to call it communion. In fact, Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 10. Or he calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, the table, the Lord's table. You might have heard it that way. Or perhaps the Eucharist. Those of you who've got some former Roman Catholics here today, you've heard of the Eucharist, right? Of course, the Eucharist is just the Greek word for give thanks, Eucharisto, to give thanks. Because what do you see the Lord doing in this passage, right? After he had, after he had broken the bread, what did he do? He gave thanks, right? Uh, he gave thanks before taking the cup. He Gave thanks, the Eucharisto, the, the breaking, uh, excuse me, the giving thanks. But also we see it's an expression in Acts 2 of breaking of bread. So within the Bible, what you want to understand is that the Bible takes on sort of different terms to refer to the same thing, which is quite natural. It does that with pastors, bishops, elders, same term or different terms referring to the same person. And so don't be confused uh, by that. Um, so when we call it communion, we don't think, we're not thinking that it's something different than the Lord's Supper, or when we call it you know, we're gathering together to break bread and celebrate the table of the Lord. We're not saying that, that we're celebrating something other than what the Lord instituted in the Last Supper. Does that make sense, I hope? What we understand, though, fundamentally here is that the Lord is instituting for his disciples and for the church what is something to be done repeatedly. And the reason we know that, not only by Mark's gospel here, because if we look at Mark, we got to you just look at the the narrative of Mark, we understand like, okay, there's no command here by Jesus to say, do this in remembrance of me. 
Notice he doesn't say that. Not because Jesus didn't say that. It's just Mark wasn't particularly focused on that. Mark didn't include that information. Maybe it wasn't available to Mark when he wrote the gospel, or perhaps, more likely, it was outside of the the scope of what Mark was doing. Luke, however, includes that language as well as Paul. So what we want to understand is when we go to 1 Corinthians, and we see 1 Corinthians 11 that we heard read earlier, we understand then that the early church from the very beginning was partaking in the Lord's Supper or communion or breaking bread in this sense um, early from the very beginning. So what we want to understand is implied in these words is the institution of the Lord's Supper. That is, it is an act in which we are to do regularly. Now, before we get into meaning, I just want to take two notes. One, one. First, there is no command in Scripture, read this, no command in Scripture that says how often it has to be taken. So it doesn't say it has to be done every Sunday or on the first Sunday or the last Sunday or whatever Sunday in between. I think the Lord gives discretion uh, to the congregation. Secondly, there is no command that says who is the one who is to administer the Lord's Supper. That is, does it have to be the deacons, ushers, pastors? Who, who does that, you know? Now, we could look at some passages where we might understand from maybe Acts 7 that it, it seems to be the early church were using deacons in that regard, but there's that's sort of sacred ground. There's no specific command that says. So we kind of laid those things aside. Let's get into meaning. First, we understand Jesus says here, take, this is my body. This is my body. What Jesus, now I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't take the Passover lamb. He takes the bread. Okay? He doesn't take the lamb. Why? Because he knows. Because he knows. And he also doesn't say that it's broken. He just says, take, eat, this is my body. What we want to understand here is that Christ's body was the sacrifice, the bread that was broken for our sin. That is, that Christ satisfied the wrath of God. So just as the lamb was sacrificed, that that body was, was, was killed, we understand that the body of Christ was killed for our sin. And so the innocent Christ was then made the guilty party for us. This is my body. Or as Luke said, this is my body, which is for you. So what we understand then is that the body of Christ was for us. That is, the, what we see in the bread when we, when we take that, what we see and understand is that it's a reminder of the death of Christ, that his life, the life of Christ that was given for our sin, for us in a substitute in our way. Furthermore, we want to understand that the bread was all broken from a common loaf, signifying the unity of of those who were partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, Baptists historically kind of got away from the common loaf thing uh, about a century and a half ago. And it's okay. You don't have to have one loaf and break it off. Other, you, may be, you may have been a part of another uh, congregation that had a sort of common loaf and they broke it off. That's a beautiful picture. And, and what that signifies is unity. And we can do it in the sense that we're all eating the same thing. That signifies unity as well. What we understand is that there's unity then. There's a unifying picture when one loaf is broken. 
and everyone is eating off the same loaf. There's a sense in which all are partakers in that body of Christ. Secondly, Jesus goes on to say, having taken the cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Christ's body and his blood was the picture of this sort of vicarious atonement that we've been talking about. That is, he says that, look what he says. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, we see the concept that Jesus is doing this not for himself, but for someone else. On behalf of another. So Jesus died in our place. He bore and appeased the wrath of God for us. In other words, what Christ is doing on the cross is what you and I deserve. Punishment that Christ is going to bear in a matter of hours from the institution of the Lord's Supper, we understand was for us. And so we're reflecting back into when we partake of the cup and the body of Christ, we understand that that was for us, for our sin, and a reminder of that. I want to sort of hone in on one last thing as we think about what Christ says here in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. There's really two things I want to think about here as we sort of wrap up. First of all, what we see in this passage is that the Lord is talking about something new. A new covenant that he is inaugurating in that, that this new covenant. That his blood is the new covenant in my blood, he says which is poured out for many. Now, in our text, we don't have new, but we can go to Luke or we can go to Paul and we can see that that is, in fact, what Jesus says. This is Mark. Just omit that. Not because Mark didn't want us to understand that. He, 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 underst- he, he thought that his folks would know what he meant. But it was the inaugurating of the new covenant. That is the only way you can have a relationship through, is through Jesus Christ. It's not by works, but by Christ. So we understand then this fact. And then also, I want you to understand that it is pointing to something bigger. Notice what he says in verse 25 again. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not only looking backwards, but we're looking forward. That is, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are in fact looking forward to that day where we won't be in isolated, independent churches scattered across the globe, but that we will be united together with every other blood-brought brother and sister. And we will not just be eating with brothers and sisters, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a hope of future glory in this in the Lord's Supper. We don't we no longer look at our our current content. We understand we have this sort of gaze upwards. And friends, we want to understand that as we celebrate these elements, as we partake this week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, we do not want them to just sort of wash away these thoughts away from our hearts and minds. We don't want to just become sort of passive, throwing some bread and, and, and drinking some juice. That's not what we want. 
And we don't have time to get into all of the sort of theological disagreements. I, I really tried to stay away from those this morning between what Lutherans and, and Baptists and Presbyterians and, you know, fill in the blank. How we view the suffrage of the faith and all of those sort of what we want to understand fundamentally is that it is a proclamation and an identity-shaping event. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are claiming allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth. You are saying that He is Lord. And the warning for you and I is that when we do that and we are not living as if Jesus is Lord? If we are partaking of the Lord's Supper and we are saying to the world and to those around us that our allegiance is to Christ when in reality our allegiance is not to Christ but to ourselves, we are, in the words of Paul, drinking judgment upon ourselves. So we want to understand there is hope. There's also warning. Not only that, there is this new identity with one another. I again press in here that the Lord's Supper is an identity-shaping event in which we are no longer individuals, but we are united together. We're no longer white or black, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, famous or infamous. What we long for is what John told us about in Revelation 21. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory (coughs) for the marriage supper of the granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to him, write this. Friends, what this supper points to is a bigger supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will eat it anew, as Jesus said, in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you the praise and the glory this morning. We pray, Lord, that you sin freely to you this morning, our hope in Christ, our trust in you and your word.